Hi, welcome to Master Your Mind with me, Marissa Peer, teaching you the secrets to harness the powerful potential of your mind so you can have a fulfilled and happy and extraordinary life. Send your questions or your problems that you'd love me to solve to podcast at marissapeer.com. Hi, everyone. This is a guest I have been asked to have on my show by so many women. So today I'm delighted to join, be joined by Matthew Hussey. He's the leading dating expert for women. He's a New York Times best-selling author of Get the Guy. He's been the relationship columnist for Cosmopolitan magazine and the resident love expert on the Today Show along with his own radio show. Matthew is the CEO and founder of MatthewHussey.com. He's built a global brand over the last 12 years as fellow Brit living in LA, just like me. And we all want to know Matthew, well, middle women here want to know how to get the guy. I know you've worked with people like Christine Aguilera and Eva Longoria, and you've coached millions of women around the world to help them get the love life of their dreams. And so I can't wait for you to tell our audience, because I, I used to also have an agony column in Cosmo. It's so funny, I was the um, relationship expert there too. People always write in about, you know, how can I meet the right person? Or how do I know this is the right person? I saw so many people staying in the wrong relationship because they were scared it would never get any better. So I want to talk to you today about the secrets of attracting an amazing relationship and not just finding the person, but making that relationship last forever. And I know that there's no one better than you to help us navigate through the dating world. So welcome, Matthew. I'm thrilled that you're here. We're both in the UK. We're both going back to LA in two weeks. So tell me, Matthew, um, about how you discovered your gift for helping women get the guy. <laughs> well, firstly, thank you for having me, uh, Marissa, and for that very handsome introduction. I, um, I suppose for me, I was always interested in, in people and I, I was selfishly as a teenager, very interested in the idea that you could make a bigger impact than you had been making so far. Uh, I, you know, I was a very shy teenager uh, and I, I liked when I, I was 11 years old when I first read, uh, my dad had How to Win Friends and Influence People on his bookshelf. And I first read that book uh, very young and it spoke to me because I just, I, I associated with being a shy kid and I thought, oh my God, you, you can actually make more of an impact. You're not condemned to however you come across socially right now. And so I, that, became, that became a personal journey for me for a long time. And then I actually ended up coaching men before I was coaching women. I was working with men in their confidence because that was what I'd focused on for me. So I was really only passing on what I knew that had worked for me. And after a while, women started saying, you know, why aren't you doing the same thing for us? And at the time and the age I was at at that point, I didn't want to make any pretense of how much I knew about women. So I said to, I said to the women that were coming to me, I don't know you. I, you know, I, I know me and I know men and I've been working with them for a while. And at first they just said, great, tell us about that. Tell us about men. And so I, I think at the beginning, I started really working with women in their dating lives by talking about what I knew of male psychology, what I knew of the fears and the insecurities that men had and the patterns that men fell into that 
these women were having to deal with on a daily basis. That was 14 years ago now. So I have come to know women better than I did then. And um, the pat- not all of the patterns, not all of the things that I thought were the biggest issues back then that I was helping women with are the same things I think are the big issues now. It's changed a lot as I've watched, as I've evolved in my career. And I'm happy to speak to that. So you teach women how to approach and attract a guy by really playing to their ego, by making him feel like he's been of service. I mean, I know that men's greatest need is to be admired and they love feeling that they can do something. So can you talk about that, that what you think women should do? Talk, if you would, about how they should approach a guy, why they should play to his ego and and what they should actually do. Give Give me some examples of how. I... I wonder if I would still put it in terms of playing to his ego. I, I think that first and foremost, it's worth saying people in general have a hard time talking to each other. It's one of the reasons dating apps exist is that people struggle with the basic interaction of walking over and saying, hi, forget walking over and saying, I'm attracted to you. Just walking over and saying hello is a difficult thing for most people. Um, And that's because there's intention there. There's the intention to to get something out of the situation on the side of the man or the woman. You know, we're going in because we want, you know, to get someone's number or we want to hopefully go on a date with this person. And those stakes make it quite scary. And they especially make it scary for, for men who, many of whom think it's their job to go over and do something. They think it's their job to go and approach the woman. And most of us men are really terrible at it. So when I started out, I said, you know, women would say, I'm old fashioned, I don't make the move. And I would say, well, actually there's a version of old fashioned where you absolutely were making the move. You know, when women would, you know, whether metaphorical or literal, dropping the handkerchief in front of the guy, he, you know, he was he had a chance to pick up the handkerchief, walk it over and say, Madam, you dropped this. And she would say, did I? And they'd now have a conversation, a conversation that he thought was his idea, but it wasn't. It was hers. She chose the man she wanted to drop the handkerchief in front of. And so, you know, in the beginning, I would say to women, one of the modern ways of dropping the handkerchief would be simply to ask for a favor. Uh, you don't have to even think about it in terms of asking a favor. You know, if you ask someone to make a recommendation for you, or if you ask someone to hold your jacket for a brief moment because your hands are full and you need to give your coffees to your friends or whatever it may be, those moments allow a guy, A, it, it's a nice little moment for him to be of service, but B, it also just gives him a license to actually talk to you. Yeah, no, it's funny because I remember when I was like 25 and I was in the gym and there was this really good looking guy doing a weight machine. And I said, hey, can you show me how to do that? <laughs> Talk to him and he did. And then he was happened to mention, he really wanted to go, Will, you wanted to go to Camden Palace. I went, oh, my friend owns that. Shall I get you some tickets? He's like, yeah. So I said, there you go. And he went, oh, you're going to come with me, aren't you? And I'm like, sure. And that was the beginning of a wonderful relationship. But I knew what I was doing. Wow. I said to him, can you show me how to do this exercise? Because I wanted to talk to him. Yes. But he didn't know, I don't think. He truly thought I really wanted to know how to do this arm curl thing. 
but it was, it's so much easier. Gyms used to be such a great place because you could talk to someone about the gym. It's not like, oh, I feel like I'm coming on to you and you're going to reject me because he could have just shown me how to do the exercise, walked off and there would have been, nobody would have lost face. So I, I agree with you that it, often you can say to someone, hey, you know, in, in a line in Starbucks, is this a good, what would you recommend here? Or in a store, look at someone's bars and go, oh, is that a great thing? I've often thought about buying that line. Is yes. it good? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And those, you know, those little moments are, I mean, my God, it's so, it really does freak me out sometimes when I think of how much of our life you can boil down to these tiny moments of decision to say or do something instead of doing nothing. And sometimes it's one extra look that you give someone that gives them the, forget speaking, even if you're looking at someone in a cafe or wherever, and you give them one extra look, it could be the fifth look or the sixth look or the seventh look. And that's the one mm. that makes them finally go, okay, they definitely are looking over. I've got the confidence now to go and say something. And, and that's it's such a shame when people stop, stop short of that extra little bit of effort that green lights an interaction that could turn into a, a life-changing relationship. Because we're all so scared of being rejected. I think when you get older, you're less scared. But when you're in your teens and 20s, you're so terrified of being rejected that yes. you just don't know how to go up to someone and go, hey, you look cute, or what's your name, or I'd like to get to know you, or anything. But it, it, I think it's so hard when you're young because you're so hardwired to be so scared of being rejected. And um, once you can get past that by understanding that nobody can reject you unless you give them your consent it gets easier much easier but are you are you uh i'm curious in your life now are there situations with rejection that can still do, do they still get to you or in any arena uh, you know i'm curious no not really because i have to practice what i preach i mean obviously when you put yourself out there and there's always going to be somebody who goes and goes i hate that person who does she think she is i can't stand her posh stuck up voice or you don't know anything but you know i understand as most of us do that people are happy don't wake up and go oh i'm so happy who can i diminish today <laughs> down or unhappy i don't wake up and go oh who could i make feel awful and when people leave mean comments on my youtube although actually the very few i'm so lucky but when they do i just think oh that's a shame you don't know me or that's a shame you're very mm -hmm. unhappy because you can't stop people being mean but what you can do is not let it in it's really important to not let in destructive criticism i mean when mm -hmm. i was a teenager when i was in my 20s i was insecure with a capital I, like so insecure. And um, I wouldn't, I remember years ago walking through Selfridges and this really good looking guy looked at me, came to speak to me and I didn't know what to do. I just walked out and, and ran off because I was very insecure. Now I think, what an idiot. I should have turned around and went, oh, hi, I am talked to him. <laughs> do that then. I couldn't even make eye contact. But then you kind of grow up and realize that the most important words you'll ever hear are the words you say to yourself. And then if you have a relationship and someone really loves you and says, oh, you're so great and I love your voice, oh, you're so smart, they kind of build you up. And, and if only we could know that when that relationship ends, they don't pack in their bag everything they liked about you. They don't go, I'm taking it with me now. Mm -hmm. Packing my shirts and my pants and all the good things I liked about you are going in that case as well and 
with me. They can't take those. And so I sometimes think you have to think of your first relationship as a starter relationship, like you have a starter home. I got a little mm -hmm. studio and I love it. And then I grow out and I need extra bedrooms now and a bit of outside space. So we have a starter relationship and we begin to learn who we are. And that's, a, that's a wonderful point though, because I, it's very beautiful, that idea of taking the compliments with you because we tend to do the opposite, don't we? We do, especially when we're on the receiving end of a breakup, we, we tend to take all of the heartbreak and all of the, the things that we think are wrong with us and the things that we think made us not good enough for that person, which is why they broke up with us. But we don't, we don't take with us or we, don't, we, we fail to remember all of those wonderful things they said to us over the course of that relationship. Yeah, I think it's a very good idea to write down every compliment you've ever had, everything, write down everything, write down more mm -hmm. and more and more, and then start to think, wow, someone said that about me, someone thought that about me, because yeah. what we do when it goes wrong is we go, oh, they, they don't like me and I'm not enough and what's wrong with me? And sometimes, you know, you just grow out of people. And, and we have this, women particularly have this belief that they're being rejected, but you know, most of us, if we're honest, have been dumped. And I've also probably had to dump someone. I know I've had both. I've been dumped and I've had to dump someone. And I hated doing the dumping. I hated saying to someone, like, I'm so sorry, you know, but no, you're just not the one. And if I could make this work, I'd make it work. I wish I could, but I just can't get that feeling. And I found it painful and embarrassing and I just hated it. I don't think anyone really gets pleasure from letting someone go or rejecting or ending a relationship. It's really hard to do. It's like that song, breaking up is hard to do. So if you've ever had to let someone go and you didn't enjoy it, then don't believe that other people are getting any pleasure out of dumping you or moving on or finding someone else. They probably don't enjoy it either. But you know, we can't all be right for everybody. Right, that's exactly right. I, I, that is that is the. I think often we don't realize that somewhere in our desire to, you know, when I I sometimes think a nice reframe for worrying about rejection is when you realize what it is you're really asking for by not being rejected or by removing the possibility of rejection. It's it, it equates to wanting every single person to want us, which is a particular form of narcissism. So yeah. I, I think actually it's, it's worth reminding ourselves of that anytime we go up to someone is if I'm, if I'm afraid of rejection on some level, I must, I must wish for a world where every single person here wants me, uh, which is a, an unreasonable position to say the least. Yeah, it's a bit like people who say, I'm really self-conscious. It's like, honestly, darling, no one's looking at you. When, when you're doing yoga and you're trying so hard to do the tree, you're trying so, no one's looking at you to see if you can get it right because they're too busy trying to get their own thing right. No one's in the gym doing the plank, trying to look at you and going, oh, you can't do the plank. So it, that's the kind of arrogance too that we think everyone's looking at us and judging us and assessing us because most of us are too busy living our life and trying to get stuff right. And if someone really is judging you and assessing you, they must be very unhappy because yes. superior people praise and people who feel inferior tend to tend to criticize. So you have to really have a good talk to yourself about why you believe everyone's looking at you, rejecting you, because the people that matter don't care. 
and the people that care about that stuff don't matter. And even, you know, we're, even if people are thinking of us or looking at us in this very brief moment and looking at what we're doing and thinking they're doing it wrong, that's one of a thousand thoughts going through their head. And that's so far from being one of the important ones for them. (laughs) Everyone's thinking of the fight they just had with their partner this morning or the fact that they're worried about this lump that they felt and they've got to go to the doctors or the the goal that they feel like they're not progressing fast enough towards everyone's got their thing that they're thinking about it even if one concedes that someone that this person is focusing on me right now it's so far from being one of the important thoughts in their mind and if we could recognize just how unimportant this moment of us and them is right now in the context of their life i think we'd feel so much freer yeah, you know, you talk a lot about wiring. I want to talk to you about that because I know as a therapist of well, all my adult life that we are so hardwired to survive. And, and as primitive people, we could only survive by finding connection, avoiding rejection, because it wasn't that long ago mm-hmm. that safety was a numbers game. You had to belong to a tribe and you couldn't make it on your own, which is why we're so terrified of rejection because not long ago, being banished, being cast out, being marooned, being put into isolation was kind of a death sentence. I mean, Romeo and Juliet, when they banished him, he said, well, I'd rather be killed, frankly, because there's nothing outside the city walls but purgatory. So we have this innate, inherited fear of rejection because we think it's gonna kill us, but actually you could live in an apartment on your own till you're 105, get everything delivered by Amazon, never see a soul, and you wouldn't die of rejection anymore, but you still feel as if you will. So can you talk about our primitive wiring and why men like to be admired or why men like to feel they're of service and why women feel that they shouldn't make the first moves, but men should? Well, I think to your point, which you said, I think more eloquently than, than I would, I, these things, you know, I, I forget who I even saw talking about this, but the idea that these are ancient thoughts, they're not our thoughts, they, they, they long predate us. And if we can actually remember that, then we don't identify so much with those personal thoughts. If, if you can say this feeling I have right now is, you know, I, I, one of my hobbies is boxing and there's always a moment stepping into the ring especially with a new sparring partner where ego comes into it and you have to you know a huge part of boxing is is to actually let go of that part of yourself um and in that moment when i'm going oh you know i'm almost equating how well i'm going to do with how much of a man i am or whether i'm as strong as this person or whether that those aren't my thoughts those are thoughts that almost every man has had at some point in their life for as long as men have existed and the same is true of women these are not new thoughts and i actually think embedded in there is the cure is the answer because we can actually stop identifying with it and start saying this is so unoriginal yeah this this is not this is not something that i need to take as important because everyone is feeling this all the time. And it's one of the things I love about even my, you know, I love getting together with male friends of mine and just 
talking about issues and our problems and what we're struggling with that week. Because anytime I do, I got together with a friend recently uh, who's a really, you know, like a real kind of winning kind of individual and whatever. And we got together and, you know, he said, I've had a bit of a tough week. I've been eating badly all week and I've not been, and I had been beating myself up that, beating myself up that week for not eating well and for, you know, just reneging on certain habits that I'd try and set, tried to set in place. And then I hear this friend of mine say, I haven't eaten well all week. And I'm just, and I thought to myself, this is, we do this thing in our own minds where we think that we are worse than everybody else. Yeah. And everyone's better than us. Yeah. And I do it too. And I, it's one of the reasons I love getting together with other people and hearing people talk about their stuff. Cause you just go, why, what is this thing that constantly makes us say we're worse than everybody else? Other people aren't suffering from this same problem I'm suffering from. And it is one of the reasons I wish in our society and especially on YouTube and Instagram and everywhere else, I wish people would more authentically and sincerely talk about the things they struggle with and their vulnerabilities, because I do think that's the answer. Well, you know, the basis of all friendship is that we choose people who share our vulnerability. It's the basis mm. of AA. You go to AA and think, I thought I was the only person in the whole world who sold my, sold my kid's bike to buy some beer. And I just met someone who sold their kid's bike to buy some beer. It's like, oh, I like you. <laughs> and I'm like you. And honestly, is the truth. We choose people who share our vulnerability. And yet we all try to go, oh, I haven't got any vulnerabilities. I just pretend I'm great. I'm going to play hard to get. I'm going to act like I've got no problems. My life is so great. But the problem is we, we have to connect to people. And it's very hard to connect when you're pretending your life is perfect. So what do you think about this thing about play hard to get, be not available, pretend everything is amazing, and then you're more likely to get someone to want you because we want what we can't have? Well, I think that we attract at the frequency that we're playing at. Oh, yeah. Hard, hard to get works on a certain crowd. And that crowd is playing at the same frequency as the person who's playing hard to get it's a similar it's a similar energy and hard to get get someone but it turns out that person is a bit of a game player or that person is someone who loses attention the moment they have that thing so the problem with hard to get is you let your guard down at a point where you want to because of course no one wants to maintain hard to get over a lifetime and a relationship and a marriage so eventually you let your guard down and, and then discover that this person was more attracted to the chase than they were to you. Because it, if it wasn't your character that won them over, if it wasn't your, if, if who you are normally is warm and compassionate and kind and intelligent and loving and your hard to get, your hard to get act has masked those things in you, then the person hasn't gotten attracted to those things that ultimately they're going to realize you are. Of course. They're, they're, uh, they're attracted to the dynamic, which yeah. is not sustainable. And of course, hard to get really what you should be saying is I want to resonate a frequency where I'm valuable. I'd rather be on my own than be with someone who isn't right for me, that I, I respect myself enough. If you call me at 11 o'clock, on a Saturday morning, go, hey, do you want to go out tonight? I might 
not necessarily play the game of, oh, I'm busy, but it's more like, well, you know, would it be, you should have called me last week. Um, obviously I make plans, but it's, I don't think it's about being hard to get. It's about valuing yourself enough. So if someone says, hey, I thought I'd come around and bring a pizza. You go, oh, sorry, I did that when I was a student. But you know, now, no, if you don't want to make an effort to pick me up and take me out, then I don't think I'm gonna make an effort to sit and have a pizza with you. So it's not about being out, it's about what are you worth? You know, like if I remember years ago when I was at university, this guy got on the bus, he went, hey, do you wanna come back to my house and cook me dinner? I'm like, no, of course I don't wanna come back. I don't go- A man on a bus said this. Dinner. It's a very Northern, that was a very Geordie thing. And I think he thought that it was a big compliment that he really thought he could ask me, come back to my house and cook my dinner. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I cook my own dinner at that level. I couldn't even cook, so there was no way I was. I was only nineteen. I wasn't going. You to said this isn't good for you or me. No, but but you have to have a sense of yourself, which is I'm worth better. I deserve better. Mm. You know, if if you're not going to make an effort, if you're going to like look at all my friends and look at other women and not call when you say you're going to call and not turn up when you say you're going to turn up, then then you're not showing me respect, but I have to show you that I'm the kind of person that says I'm worth better. So for instance, if somebody shouted at me, I was filming a show and one of the guys on the show shouted at me and I said, oh, I don't let people speak like that. And when I speak to everyone like that, I said, well, that's because they let you, but I don't let people shout at me. So come back when you can have a conversation. And he did because it's about developing a sense of self where you can say no, that that's not okay. You know, I'm always surprised at women who say, my boyfriend won't let me go out. What do you mean? I'm not allowed to go out. I'm not allowed to wear these clothes. I'm not allowed to have conversations. He looks through my phone. And you have to have a sense of self that says, no, if, if we can't trust each other, then we just don't have a relationship. That's absolutely right. And I, and I, I think to add to that, I kind of wish more people would, would come to see showing interest in someone and having the kind of standards that you just laid out as not being mutually exclusive. It's entirely possible to tell someone how much you like them, to compliment them, to tell them how excited you would be to see them, but at the same time, maintain certain boundaries and standards. Boundaries and standards don't have to mean coldness. They don't have to mean uh, someone having to play the guessing game of whether you like them. If you go to see a, a, a person and you have the best date ever, or the two of you go and have a wonderful time together doing whatever you're doing, and then you come away and you don't feel a lot of energy from that person. And that person four weeks later or three weeks later messages you uh, and has a, you know, says, hey, how are you? And you're like, in, you know, inside you're kind of like, we had a great time. <laughs> Where the hell have you been? That I, I love when someone can, man or woman, maintain their vulnerability and their sense of warmth at the same time as having firm boundaries if you could say to someone i had such a great time with you when we were together and i i really like you but i i you kind of disappeared 
and, uh, and so I'm not really sure what to do with this text. That is a, I, I call it the bliss point. The bliss point is a food industry term that describes the optimal level of salty and sweet in a food that makes it something that we can't stop eating. And there's a bliss point to communication. I think of that as the bliss point of communication when you're simultaneously showing all of the warmth and kindness and loving nature that made someone like you in the first place, whilst also demonstrating boundaries. Yeah. Very, very attractive combination. Yeah, I think that's so good for women to go, hey, we really had fun. I enjoyed your company, but it just doesn't work for me when you call me at 11 o'clock at night. Yes. It doesn't work yes. for me when you just knock on my door in the middle of the night and think some kind of booty call is okay. I was working with a client once and he said something I never forgot. And he went, oh, do you know, I dated this. She's just sent me a text. And she said, I don't want to see you again because you didn't try hard enough in bed. He went, I'm so seeing her again. And he loved that, that she had actually sent him a text saying, you didn't try hard enough in bed. I was disappointed. I don't want to see you again. And he texted her and said, no, 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 I'm really sorry. I was having a bad day. I was very tired. I can show you that I can give you much, much more. But most women wouldn't have the courage to do that, to actually call him up on the fact that he was selfish in bed. And he didn't think, oh, how rude. He thought, wow, what a woman. I'm going to go back and see her. <laughs> got a sense of herself. She can ask for what she wants. She can tell me this is not good enough. I deserve right. better. I deserve a man who really makes an effort in bed to please me. And if that's not you, don't call me again. But he was definitely calling her again because he wanted to be that man. And well, of course, the, the too many people are so passive that yeah. they... The problem with being passive is not just that being passive could be perceived as, as, as lack of confidence it's also that it actually never successfully communicates to somebody what they did wrong and what you need for them to do better in order for the dynamic or the relationship to continue. And I think that's the sad part is a lot of people never actually communicate what they'd like more of because they're worried that they're gonna make things awkward, that they're gonna come across as demanding, but, as a result, people don't even know how to correct course. I know, and they'll say things like, oh yeah, they didn't dress right, or they, they weren't right for me without realizing that you can, you can, I mean, when I met my husband, I could certainly say he didn't dress, luckily he's also got a terrible memory, so I just lost all his clothes I didn't like and got him. <laughs> and I said, darling, I'm not, I'm managing you, I'm not changing you. I'm just managing your wardrobe so that you look much better than you already look. So you look really attractive and hot. And he loved that because I was, I was actually getting rid of his, but I did it in a very nice way. I was managing him and managing out the stuff that just didn't suit him. And one of my friends said, oh my God, he looks so good now that you've changed how he, how he dresses. But so he have, didn't, he didn't mind that. Well, he would have minded it if I didn't tell him that I was, I, I was managing him. We, we like being managed. I was managing his wardrobe. I was getting him stuff that really made him look very edgy. And now he dresses completely differently to when I first met him. But I think if you got it, I hate all your clothes. You look awful. I've thrown them away. It's very different to, hey, you look really nice in this pinstripe jacket. It really suits you. 
let's go and get another one in that style. And I love these shoes that you wear. And I love these particular shirts from this. We go to the shop in Abbot Kinney called Robertson. They have amazing shirts and they really look nice on you. They give, they give off the right message. We were actually in Morocco and this guy came up and I said, wow, did, he looked so good because he had on everything, a pale gray suit. I said, that looked so nice. And I'm going to get you exactly the same color. So you have to do it in the right way. But if you go, well, look, he looks nice. Why can't you dress like that? <laughs> yeah. Such a sense of, you look terrible. You know, you have to do what I call the sandwich technique. So just give someone yes. a compliment and then you hit them and then you compliment them again, which is, you know, you're great and you're so lovely and I love you just the way you are. However, it's really nice to see you wearing these really sharp suits and they suit you, but I, I don't care if you turn up in old beaten up jeans. So you have to be very careful with giving because a compliment, the filling, the compliment. So for instance, if you're too tired for sex and the guy, well, I have sex, you go, I love having sex with you. This, I'm actually so tired. I just, but tomorrow I'd love to have sex. It sounds very cheesy, but it's no, so I get it. People to hear that, then, oh no, stop, don't bother me. I'm so tired, leave me alone. But I think we just don't understand how to communicate with people. I mean. You know, I was driving along one day in a car with my husband. I was yap, yap, yapping to him and he wasn't listening. He was on his phone. And he and I have now got this really good thing where instead of me saying to him, why don't you listen? You're ignoring me. Oh, you're not interested in what I have to say or you're being really rude. I say, you know, I'm telling myself a story now that you're not interested in what I have to say. And he will reply. And, I'm, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I was just telling myself a story that you were like, talking to me said I've just got a message from to say that our our bank account's been hacked and I'm trying to deal with that and I can't listen to you so mm -hmm. we both thought well let's see I'm telling myself a story he's not listening he's telling myself a story I, I really need her to shut up so that I can deal with this but then I told someone that on YouTube and someone else said well well that was a lie because by the way, your bank never sent you a text saying you're being hacked. So there's another story. And I said, oh no, it wasn't. The, our accountant actually emailed him and said, change all the passwords, we're being hacked. But we all tell ourselves the story, you've forgotten my birthday, you don't care. My, my kids don't, I mean, no one's gonna want me with three kids and cellulite. And it's a very good idea to stop and go, what story am I telling myself? I, might, I have a daughter, I love her dearly, but when she was a teenager, I do that. She doesn't respect me, I do so much. And I have to go, I'm telling myself a story. Mm. My teenager doesn't respect me. Whereas the truth is my teenage daughter is acting age appropriate. I'm completely boring and irrelevant and don't know anything about anything. Or her <laughs> and so the better story is, this is just age appropriate. But I think in relationships, especially with ghosting and all these new things that happen, women tell themselves a story. Every guy ghosts me. They always want somebody younger. They just want someone vacuous. They're just into looks. And I know that isn't true, but I'd love to hear your take on why people even do ghosting because it's so rude and so unkind. Well, um, before I answer that, I, I just have to say, I love, I love the idea of not only what you just said in terms of not only admitting to yourself or framing this insecurity or thought as this is a story I'm telling myself to ourselves, but outwardly framing it that way to the person we're with, whether it's our partner or a friend or a family member, 
I think that's very powerful. And that's a kind of vulnerability that a lot of people aren't willing to, uh, to own. But I think it's very beautiful when they do because everyone can relate to doing that. If, if, we, if we tell that to someone, if we're in the car with someone and we say the story I'm telling myself right now is that you're not interested in what I have to say. If someone can't at some point see that for the quite you know, beautiful and, and sensitive thought that it is, that's so relatable, then there's a, there's a lacking in empathy there because everyone has felt that. And that's what I find really beautiful about that idea that it, your story isn't, saying to yourself it's a story isn't just a way of unburdening yourself from the idea that this is the single singular truth of the matter. It's also a way of connecting your, your vulnerability, your fear, your insecurity can actually be a way of, of bonding with your partner if you say it out loud in that way and not as an attack and yeah. a judgment on them. I think it's beautiful. In and terms of ghosting. Because it um, also see that it's not what they're doing, it's what you feel about it. They've forgotten my birthday, so they don't love me. When yeah. it's, you know, hey, it's my birthday next week, I know you love me. Well, let's plan something amazing. But so often we, we create our issues. I know that you're not thinking, I know that you don't care. You don't spend enough, you don't buy me gifts, you don't care. You know, my husband and I are very different. Like for me, birthdays are a big deal. For him, he doesn't even care. If I bought him a little book for five bucks, he'd be thrilled. But for me, if he bought me a book for five bucks, I'd be like, wow, that's the effort you put in. But he doesn't care about effort. And I really do. And I think when you're with someone, we often expect that they're going to be like us, but you know, they're not like us. Like my husband loves cooking, loves going out to eat. I don't love cooking. And honestly, I don't really care on a weekday about going out, but he does. And so you have to recognize that everyone is different and you have to meet your partner's needs, but you can't meet all of them and they can't meet all of yours. And I think so many women especially have a belief that the right guy is a psychic he knows what to do in the bedroom he knows what gift to buy he knows what to say and then they go oh we're not on the right page you can't imagine this awful gift he bought me it was so cheap and tacky or he doesn't understand my feelings and you're never going to find someone like you and if you did that would be really boring but you have to give someone some leeway for not being you a hundred percent and that's I was just speaking about this today because I, I really believe one of the big problems, and I will come back to your, to your question on ghosting, but I, I do think one of the big problems of uh, the reasons people struggle to find a relationship today is because they're so busy, you know, they meet someone, they project everything they want them to be onto them, and they don't actually listen to who that person is. They don't make space for the way that that person actually is. And they almost have the same relationship with, their, with this new person in their life as, they do, as we do with celebrities culturally now, where you know people fall in love with their favorite, favorite celebrity. Oh my God, did you see them on that talk show? They were so charismatic, they were so witty. Oh, they, I love them in that movie, they're so amazing. I love this person. And then the moment that celebrity says or does anything that is out of jaunt with, what they had projected onto them, all of a sudden that celebrity is the devil. Oh, I can't stand them. They, you know, we should cancel them. I can't. And it's, 
it, you realize at that point, oh, you never wanted a relationship. I'm obviously not talking a romantic relationship. You never wanted a relationship with this person. You just wanted to worship them. You just wanted to idolize them. And, and that's true within dating too. You know, I, I think when people fall in love too fast, it's almost to me a giveaway that they're not ready for a real relationship because they're not actually paying attention to who's in front of them. They're not taking time to truly get to know who this person is. They're taking the 1% of this person that they know from a first date or a second date and using that to extrapolate the other 98% of who this person is. And now this person can't possibly live up to this 98%. And anything they do that deviates from it makes them all of a sudden wrong for them. Uh, and I do, I think it's a big problem these days. I think is people, people need to shift their perception of what a relationship actually is, which is two people constructing, two people with good raw materials constructing something together. Not two perfect people showing up to shake hands and say, let's do this. In terms of your ghosting question, um, I think I, I have two mindsets on this. On one hand, yes, I agree with you. It's uh, the worst effects of ghosting. It could be very callous. It, it, I mean, look, I, I deal with women who tell me I got ghosted after a first date. And then I deal with women who say I was dating someone for six months intensely intensively and all of a sudden they literally disappeared off the face of the earth those to me are two very different things <laughs> there's those are there's much more egregious forms of of ghosting and i think that we ghost e even those among us who would say i i can't stand ghosting have done this in many forms and possibly are even doing it on in many forms right now i have i could look at my messages on my phone right now and what would be horrific to me is if i looked through every single one of my texts i am sure there's a, a friend or two or or five in there that i have ghosted in the last couple of weeks not in the sense that i will never get back to them but in the sense that they sent me a message a week and a half ago that i still haven't responded to that happens to be a, a particular flaw of mine that i'm working on but i do think that ghosting takes many forms we can a, a friend can ask us to plans on friday and we can not get back to the most kind of put off getting back to them because we're like secretly oh god i don't want to go but i don't know what to say and so i think that to avoid ghosting we obviously have to cultivate a, a sense of honesty and bravery that we're willing to have difficult conversations in our lives and ultimately if you look at ghosting in the romantic sense it is a romantic form of being unwilling to have difficult and awkward conversations with people. Yeah. yeah, and I guess before you'd meet someone and you try and make it work because you were maybe dating from a limiting pool. You know, I come from a little village in Cambridge and certainly there were lots of people, but there weren't, you weren't swiping left and thinking, well, there's hundreds of more. It's like being in a kid in a candy shop. And I think Sometimes when you have so many, many options, it's always like what I call next. Well, you're nice, but next. And there's always someone else and there's always more. And I, I wonder what that's done to dating, this massive variety of people that you can meet online and have a conversation with that night. It's, it's, I think it's made people not work so hard, as you say, to find out who are you, what makes you tick. Yep. 
and, and let's see what we can grow together here. It's like, oh, well, you disappointed me. So next, you and, weren't right next. And it's also, you know, the, the, the kind of availability of people now. And even if you forget going on dates, if you just took the amount of people that the average person is even shooting first messages to in the hopes of something happening, it presents a very logistical problem of if you were trying to uphold the highest etiquette of honesty with everyone you ever communicated with in dating right now, that would feel like a full-time job to most people. Because at what point do you owe someone an explanation? You know, even after a first date, you know, it, it's debatable how much, you know, someone, someone leaves a first date where they had a great time and a week later, they because that person hasn't texted them, they say they ghosted me. But it's debatable as to whether someone owes you an explanation That's after a ghosting. I meant when you've been seeing someone and you have a connection and you have a thing and they suddenly change their number and never oh, well, yeah. disappear out of your life and you can't even find them to go, hey, we were going out on Saturday and I've never heard from you again. That is that I I believe is a very, very different and a mar, far, far uglier uh, act is to is to truly disappear, especially when you've made plans with someone or when uh, you're you're intensively seeing someone. That to me is a that's its own thing, and I I think that people have to unburden themselves from the need for. I, I, and I say this with love. Uh, the person on the receiving end of that behavior has to unburden themselves from the need for closure, for explanation, for any of that. Because I, I can't think of anything that's more of a waste of life than uh, sitting there puzzling and trying to work out someone who hasn't even given you the decency of, of letting you know that they don't want to see you or that they're okay. That I see all the time people wasting extraordinary energy yeah. on that. And closure is in, immensely overrated, in my opinion. Yeah, the only closure we need is that person did that. Now I can move on. Yeah. It's like, I need to know why I wasn't right for you. They don't always know why. Sometimes it just doesn't fit. It's very hard to say, you know, why did you not want to be with me? Why did you find someone else? Why was it not me? I mean, they had that whole thing in Sex and the City where Carrie said to Big, but why did you marry her and not me? Uh -huh. Some people, it's an impossible thing because they don't always know. It's not they can go, oh, well, actually, this is what happened. You don't always know why. It, it's a feeling that it's not right. It's a, it's very hard to explain, but it's like and 24 it, hours from Tulsa, I was coming home to you and someone looked at me and suddenly I'm never coming home again. And, and that song is trying to explain the absolutely unexplainable that I don't yes. even know. And it's a reminder that even had that person not ghosted you, and had they told you politely that they weren't interested in seeing you anymore, we shouldn't kid ourselves that that would offer us any more closure. You know, the, the, we still don't know why. And even when people tell us why, they don't always know the exact reason and they don't even give us the honest reason. So in a way, ghosting is a more, even though it's a more severe form of closure, I actually in some ways think it's an easier form of closure because you get to say, well, not only did that person not want me, but they showed a character trait that I wouldn't want from somebody I would want a relationship with. 
So actually that allows me to, that if they'd have just said, I don't want you and I'm not interested in seeing you again, that may have been a little harder, but the fact that they acted in that fashion should actually make your life easier in walking away, not harder. So here's a question you maybe think, why do you think women talk about the bad boys? I like bad boys. And what do you think that is really all about? Because what they're saying is someone's got a character trait of meanness and selfishness and ruthlessness and, oh, I, I want to be with them. So why do you think women, because there's not so many women going, hey, I like really, I like bad girls. I like the mean um, ones. <laughs> But why do you think women tell themselves they like, I mean, there's songs called Bad Boys, but why do you think that is? What's behind that? Well, I do think that men have a similar thing going on, but perhaps for a different reason. I, I, I think that though men may not ever say, or may, un, may be less usual for a, a man to say, I like bad girls, I think that there is a sense of the girl who was mean to me on the playground at school or who never liked me in college, um, there's something about spending your life trying to impress that woman and win her over. Because if I could just win her over, then then I'd be enough. Then I'd prove that I was a, a, an attractive man. So I think a lot of men never lose that uh, that school playground mindset. But with women, there are, there are different ideas about this. I mean, one, firstly, we have to acknowledge that there are attractive things about that guy. So the fact that he's bold, the fact that he seems to know what he wants, the fact that he appears on the surface, uh, although he may be riddled with insecurities underneath, uh, on the surface, he appears to be confident. He appears to be edgy, uh, maybe even a little mysterious and dangerous. And there's a, there's a, a, a sex appeal to that. So there's, elements of that person there's elements of the bad boy that in some ways are you know we we look for even in the good person that that we end up with you know we that you may marry a good man but it's hot when you marry a good man with an edge oh definitely. you know and so I, I even even in the right people we look for elements of the bad boy to exist occasionally and at the right moments, um, even if only in the bedroom. But yeah. if, um, but I do, uh, Esther Perel said to me when she was talking about the idea of women going for bad boys and she said, um, one of the reasons that women like the bad boy is because they see him as being able to take care of himself and his own needs. He, he goes for what he wants and he takes care of his own needs. And that allows her to focus on herself and her needs without having to be a caretaker for him. Uh, I suppose the idea being that so many women spend so much of their lives babysitting men and being their caretaker uh, and playing mother to them. But when a guy comes along who doesn't need any of that, all of a sudden she's free to focus on herself and her own needs. So I, I think that's an interesting theory. Oh, she's great, Esther. She really has some. Great I love her, yeah. Too. So, going on from the bad boys, but it kind of ties in. Why do you think people ignore the red flags and say, you know, I, I didn't really like this person? They might say the sex was red hot and amazing, but they didn't really have anything in common, or they've seen this person be rude to a waiter or rude to mm -hmm. their own children. 
and then, but they still see them. So why do you think we ignore the red flags and say, this person isn't necessarily nice. They've got some really unattractive qualities, but you've chosen to ignore them. Why do you think that is? There's a number of reasons. I think on one hand, we are afraid that we're never going to find what we want and that this person, even though there's things wrong with them, represents hope for our love lives. And so we become a biased judge ignoring everything, all the evidence that this person could make us deeply unhappy or isn't a very good person uh, and looking for all of the attributes of this person that suggest they're wonderful. We have to, we always have to suspect our judgment in situations where we want the result too badly, where we're too unwilling to be, to remain alone any longer, because that will always make us prone to ignoring the, that's the same, by the way, in a company. If you're trying to employ someone and you're desperate to fill that position, uh, someone can come through for an interview and they'd be kind of charming. Uh, and you notice that there's a few red flags and there's a few reasons why you're, this person uh, is maybe not as uh, qualified or as competent as they should be. But you're so desperate to fill that position in the company that you'll overlook it to get them in. And then you pay the price later when it turns out they can't do the job. So I think that's part of it. Uh, certainly insecurity is a part of it. I don't deserve someone who has these qualities that, you know, who is charismatic and confident and attractive, who also is going to treat me well, who also is a good person. I, you know, we think in order to, in order to have this stuff, we have to put up with this stuff. Uh, and that's a really, that's a very destructive pattern it's what is also the reason why people are you know turn into people pleasers in relationships is you know they find themselves doing twice as much for this person as this person is doing for them they're making all the sacrifices they're giving up all of their time they're going out of their way to please this person and doing all of these things that this person would never do for them I and you say why why do you do this and it's because deep down they can the the righteous mask for that is it's because I'm a loving generous person but deep down the insecurity is I'm not worthy of this person I'm not as good as, as them I've put them on a pedestal and therefore in order to keep them I have to work twice as hard as them in order to make it worth their while if I were to ask for what I really wanted this person wouldn't be around it's that whole thing of I have to earn love, work for love, run after love and chase yeah. love. But you really don't. And I see that, too, that more more people stay in the wrong relationship in case it will never get better. That I see that as the biggest problem, even they're not finding the right person is staying with the wrong person because, oh, well, better the devil, you know. So. I'd like to ask you a question. It's not really a personal question, but I guess it is. When in your life have you most needed to master your mindset? In your entire life, when has it really been of great value to you to master your mindset? And what did you do? Well, I suppose there's no way to answer that that's not personal, but I... I certainly had a very difficult heartbreak that forced me to practice everything that I preach. <laughs> I mean, there was no, you know, that, that was a time when 
I had to put my money where my mouth was because it was a it was a really really difficult time, um, and I had to. It was very humbling. It was a very difficult time because I was also having to continue to to do my job. I was having to continue to put myself out there and help people and connect with people and and give advice and and I was deeply deeply suffering myself. So, I mean, during that time, I really did, I did everything that I would tell someone else to do. Uh, you know, my brother, Stephen, he once came up with the idea that after a breakup, there's the athlete recovery method and there's the hangover recovery method. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, after a hangover, people typically wake up late, they eat a bunch of greasy food, they binge watch some trashy TV and they lay around all day and you know that they don't do anything that's actually good for them they just do things that make them feel comfortable Mm -hmm. in that moment whereas the athlete does something very different when the athlete gets injured they may have injured their shoulder but they train every other part of their body until their shoulder comes back online until their shoulder is ready to go again and even then they do physio where possible on their shoulder, they still dip their toe in the water with their shoulder. But if it's out of action, they still train every other part of themselves that they can, as well as their mindset, and they eat well, and they get enough sleep, and they do all of the things that speed up recovery. And that was what I had to do for myself was go for the athlete recovery method. You know, my my heart was was wounded, was broken. And it took me time to, to heal that. But in the meantime, I made sure that every other part of my life, uh, you know, look, firstly, let's make something clear. There's the zombie phase of a breakup. I didn't escape that. I was, there was a time when I was just a zombie and, and incapable of doing very much at all. But beyond that, and that's just a phase that requires an enormous amount of self-compassion and self-love um, and, and, and for you to not be so hard on yourself that, oh God, I've dropped this. I've I've dropped the ball on that. I'm not doing that. I think that's huge self-compassion and understanding of yourself that every day you get through is a good day. But after that, it's about training every other part of your life, whether it's your relationships with friends or family, whether it's your body, whether it's the hobbies and the passions you can lose yourself in um, so that by the time your heart's ready to go again, so to speak, everything else is already firing on all cylinders. Because if you wake up a year after a breakup, having let everything go, you've got more problems than a broken heart. Sure. So talking about a broken heart, how do you know when it's the time to end a relationship? So many people stay in it for too long or they, I'm just working with someone now, he keeps breaking up and going back to the same person over and over again, both because they're too scared to, to think they'll ever find anyone else. But how do you know, what advice would you give? How, what would you say would help you to know when it's time to end a relationship and move on? I, I suppose when you truly no longer feel that you have a teammate in making things better and working on it, either, either because your teammate has totally given up on being a teammate 
or because you see that your needs are so far from being met and there is no sign of any of that shifting or changing. It's not a phase. It's not a chapter where your partner just happens to be quite in a busy chapter and that chapter will, you know, change. If it seems to be just a permanent state of play that I'm nowhere near to getting my, we're not, we're not 10% out in terms of my needs being met. We are so far away that I cannot be happy within this relationship. Um, then I think it's time to leave. You know, people forget that relationships, relationships, what, what makes them quite different in a sense from friendships. Yes, it's lovely that your partner can be your best friend, but what makes it different from a friendship is that when you have a friend, I have many friends and they all, I think of them as operating in sort of circles, ex expanding out, you know, here's me and around me is my closest circle. And then around that are the people that I enjoy as friends and around that are acquaintances and around that are people that I enjoy seeing, but I only see once in a while. And, so, and when a friend, let's say who I deemed to be my close friend, no longer feels like a close friend or we're not really investing in each other anymore they may drift into a different circle into a more outer layer and that's okay because more friends can come into the inner circle friends shift and change and move and that's natural and that's healthy and we can develop more friends but in a monogamous relationship we can't develop more lovers yeah and so if if we're a mile away from having any of our needs met within a romantic context there's not just a, a romantic tribe that we can go to to diffuse those feelings and spread them out amongst the community. And, and so I, I just think that's where it comes down to how, how close am I to getting my needs met? Is it, do I, is it possible on the horizon? And do I have a teammate who actually looks like they're willing to get there? Because that idea of, you know, uh, um, I think it was Jacob M. Broad who said, consider how hard it is to, uh, change yourself and you'll realize uh, how foolish it is to think that you can change somebody else. That's such an important idea. Most people woke up at the beginning of this year on January 1st and said, I want to get a better body this year. Most people did that. And most people didn't. They were motivated to do it and they still didn't do it. Yeah. So now imagine trying to get your partner to change over something they're not even motivated to change. Yeah, that, that is hard that many people go into a relationship planning to change the other person when, of course, we have to remember Billy Joel's song, Don't Go Changing, to try to love <laughs> you just the way you are. And, you know, my daughter's just getting married to this amazing guy. I honestly couldn't have picked anyone better. And I remember saying to her, you know, darling, when you're looking for a husband or a boyfriend, don't overlook kindness. We get so into, oh, they're so fit and they're so good looking and they're so something and yet I you know sometimes we sort of get so caught up with a hot and heavy sex which it which is very compelling in itself but you've got to think of who am I going to spend my life with and what kind of qualities do I require in the person I'm going to spend my life with and I, I mean I'm very lucky I have an amazing husband but his qualities are he's he's so funny he can make me laugh and he's immensely kind and he's so intelligent and, and those are the things that make a relationship last. You know, mm -hmm. if you're sick, 
if you've got a problem, if you know your parents have just died and you have someone who is kind. You know, last year my little cat got attacked. It was in the jaws of two dogs. And my husband was amazing. They're my cats, they're not his. He he actually got his hand in their mouths. He got them out. And then he crawled under this crawl space to find my little cat. And then he took it to the vet. And then he paid this eye-watering fee of like, I don't know, $5,000. He said, it's okay, babe, because you love her. And I thought, well, that's so amazing. I didn't think I could love him more. But when he showed me in that day how kind he was, that he would put his own hands at risk to rescue my little kitten, that he'd crawl under a crawl space with a torch in the middle of the night because she'd hidden in fear. And then he said, then he paid the bill. And, you know, we, we really underestimate kindness. You want to spend your life with someone who is kind. Yeah. I think funny is the biggest turn on. But also right. someone interesting that you can talk to. I mean, you, you can't have sex, no matter how good it is, nature, because you've been doing that for two years. I'm now going to turn that sex drive right off because you must have made a baby the amount of time you've been in bed together. And now I'm going to turn that right down because you've got to get out of that bed and start looking after that baby. And, you know, it, you really need to look at the long, not the short term, that your heart doesn't flip and you have all this, that he's a rebel and I love him or whatever. You, you really need to look at, can you spend your life with this person? Have they got the qualities that you want to spend your life? And then you have to think of the kind of person you want. What do they want? Is I, I, I think what you just said, Marissa, is fantastically important um and and you know david brooks said marriage is a 50-year conversation yeah and that's another thing about it saying up my other half because you're not a half nobody mm. should complete you but when when i decided to marry my husband he said to me straight away you know we are never breaking up that's it we're in this forever and I would never say to him, if you do that again, I'm off one more time and I'm leaving you. I'll leave you if, and I was saying to my daughter, darling, never ever threaten to leave unless you mean it, because we do that. Oh, I'm gonna leave you. I'm gonna divorce you. And we half the time we say in jest, but if you keep saying that, you really devalue the relationship and you might feel it. Even if you feel it, never say it ever, ever, ever. If you're married to someone, don't threaten to leave. No parents are to the kid. If you leave your room in a mess, I'm leaving you. We would never say that to our children. We say it to our partners all the time. Yeah. Without realizing each time you chip away a bit until they think, well, you really are going to leave. And then you've created a huge mess. So I was very fortunate when my husband said, we will never, ever, ever break up and we'll never threaten to do that. And I tell a lot of women that don't, don't play that card. Don't pull that card out as a game yeah. because a relationship is not a game. It's not a game where one person wins and one person loses. It's two people learning to be together. And then yeah. it was such hard work. It's like, really, I don't, I don't understand that. How can it be hard work? I think it's much harder work being on your own without anyone to wake up to because my, when my husband says to me, Babe, I'll sort out the builders. That, that's foreplay to me. That's like such a turn on. You never have to speak to a construction guy again for the rest of <laughs> I will deal with those people. So where relationships are not hard work, if you find the right person and you respect each other and you care about each other and you have sexual chemistry and best friend chemistry, and you think, wow. And, and at the times occasionally when my husband does annoy me, I always imagine my life without him and immediately I think, oh no, 
I'm so lucky. And then I, I get myself out of that. And it's always good when you're having a challenge to imagine your life without that person, because if they're a good person, then your life without them will never be as good. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's lovely. Uh, that's a that's a lovely idea. Uh, what imagine if, imagine well, your life if you're having a challenge. Imagine yeah having when, that challenge without them. I love that. I've sometimes I walk into the, his bathroom and I've gone flying because he doesn't ever put a bath towel down. And he's got his little hand. We have separate bathrooms. I think that's one of the keys to a great relationship. I go in there to pick up his stuff. And, uh, and, he, and occasionally I've said to him, oh, that's really annoying. But he still does it. But then I have to remember, you know, he doesn't do that intentionally. But yeah, imagining my life without him <laughs> makes me realize how lucky I am to have him. Yeah. But tell me, I'm telling you my little... Um, secrets that make my relationship really work but what what are yours what would you say your three top tips for mastering your mind in order to have a great relationship what are your top tips also what would you say are the key attributes you should look for in a partner hmm. well whether these are my three top tips uh the the things that i find important in a relationship um, it's a horrible thing when we make our partner feel judged mm -hmm. for the way that they are. And I think that it's very easy to do that when they're different from us. Um, when they don't think in quite the same way as us, it's very easy to make them feel judged. And it's very important what you just said about your husband. Uh, you said it very offhand but it but it's so profoundly important is it's not as if he means to do that you know that hmm. the, the the leaving the floor wet you know it's not like it's a conscious or intentional thing it happens to be a difference in the way he does things or where his focus goes yeah uh, it goes to a different place and we're very quick to you know a friend of mine he he's he's in his 40s now but he said through his 30s, he was always looking for uh, everything in a person, you know, and his, every time he would let go of someone and he'd say, no, they're not quite there. And I feel like, you know, I, I can get everything. And his mum once said to him, what is it you're looking for? And he said to his mum, well, I, I, you know, I, I want everything. I want to find someone who has it all. And she said to him, I hate to break it to you, darling but you're not perfect. <laughs> yeah. She, she said, you, you know, she, she went on to list all of the flaws that he has and all of the difficult things that he, someone would have to deal with, with him and mm. put up with, with him. And he said it was a profoundly insightful moment for him. And it, by the way, I think we probably have a big problem with too many mothers making their sons feel like they are perfect. Yeah. Uh, and, and not giving them that moment of realization. And the same may be true of women, you can tell me. But I, I do, I think that we have to go in with a sense of humility that there may be lots of things, while I'm sitting here judging this person I'm in a relationship with over this thing, there may be plenty that I do every day they don't judge me for, that they accept about me while I'm here judging them for this thing. So I think that being compassionate towards our partner 
seeing the best in them and 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 regularly echoing back to them the best in them and elevating it whilst at the same time soothing some of the more difficult parts of them i think the right partner for us is is the one who doesn't agitate our worst components um who can soothe some of those parts of us that in different relationships grew into monsters and yet with this person in front of us somehow they don't feel as raw uh, as as far as the um as far as the oh and and uh, actually i was watching the crown and i actually thought there was a moment between a young diana and charles where diana says to charles anytime where either of us are feeling unloved or insecure let's give the other one exactly what they we wish they would give to us um, and i think that's that's a that's a really important thing it takes guts to mm. i'm feeling insecure or i'm feeling this i'm feeling i wish i had more love right now so i'm going to give love that's a tough thing to do but i think is beautiful advice uh, in terms of the things to look for i actually think so much of what you said in terms of looking for kindness looking for someone that you think you're going to be able to have the conversation with the conversation of of mm -hmm. life and outlook and love and over a long expanse of time uh, is deeply deeply important who can you stand to be shut in a room with um you not not just who can i leave the house with um who's and and who do i love more when they're here than when they're there because you've always got to be suspicious of you know yes absence makes the heart grow fonder but at a certain point you have to say am i more in love with this person's absence or their presence because if every time i'm actually inside four walls with them for a protracted period of time i start to think i don't want to be there anymore then maybe i'm more in love with their absence than their presence i think good family in some way i don't think it's necessary but i think that sometimes knowing that someone has love around them or knowing that if your if your family is important to you that at least they understand the concept of family and they they value it too i think is important to to because those things don't seem like much when you're dating but later down the line they start to become bigger and bigger things especially as you know if it's marriage or kids and your your community start to intertwine more uh those peripheral characters can start to become more important in various ways again i don't think it's it's absolutely necessary plenty of people uh do great with people who don't have the same family or home life as them but i think that you want to at least know that that person has an interest even if they never had it they have an interest in building what they never had yeah. that they don't they don't not understand your need to be close to family or connection um and you know certainly for me at least intelligence is is very important because that that is directly linked with the conversation i want to be having with someone over the long term i want to know we can talk about lots of different uh, yeah. things and kindness like you said i mean kindness and someone who is genuine about being a teammate to me is is number 1 because if you've got a true teammate if you've got someone who's willing to work with you through difficult things and even through your difficult things that is invaluable because you won't be a saint you will do things wrong you will screw up you will say the wrong thing but when someone 
shows compassion, even for some of your worst sides. Doesn't, doesn't mean that they agree with them and it doesn't mean that they make excuses for them, but if someone can show compassion and empathy for your neurosis, your fears, the things that the monsters you have in your head, um, then you can heal together. And I think that's one of the best properties of a relationship. Yeah, I love that stuff about the teammate. You're making me realize how lucky I am because my husband really is a great teammate. I think there's one other thing that's really helpful too, to stop and think, is my problem someone else's fantasy dream come true? Would someone somewhere go, I'd love a husband to leave toothpaste on the sink, underpants on the floor. I, I, that for me, I'd, I'd, yeah, I take it. I take all of that just to have someone that's got my back. And we forget when we start complaining that really our problem is someone else's fantasy. They, they take that in a heartbeat. Yes. And so it really helps to think about that. You know, that's someone, your problem is someone else's fantasy. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and those things that, you know, as long as they're not the, the kinds of things that make for a, an abusive relationship physically or, or emotionally, you know, those things that, those, those little things that you sometimes wish you could trade out um, you know, you could trade in the opposite of those things. And what you gain is a bunch of problems in this other area that you hadn't anticipated. Uh, we're very good at focusing on the problems we have in someone and, and not realizing what problems we might have in a different relationship. Yeah. Well, it's been amazing talking to you. you you've got really great insight and wisdom and you know, about really looking at the person. Is this the person you want to spend your life with and not trying to make them anything else? Because you'd hate it if they said, well, I love you, but change. I love you, but you've got to change this, this, and this. And so, yeah, we just have to, we're all flawed people. The best we can ever be is a flawed person having a flawed relationship with a flawed person. I love the fact that my husband's flawed because I don't have to hide the fact that I'm flawed. Yeah. If he's perfect, I think, oh God, I've got to be perfect now. But because he's flawed and I'm flawed. We have a very lovely flawed relationship. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's the best you can ever be. Same thing with my daughter. I say, baby, you're flawed, I'm flawed. We've got a beautiful flawed relationship. And it's so nice when you can have permission to be flawed instead of the, the feeling that you've got to always do better. You can be the best you can be, but it's still going to be flawed. And that's, that's actually very nice. It's a relief. And I think that, I actually think that's sort of the basis within the parent-child relationship of, you know, when, when that relationship grows up is when both of those people can make space for who the other person actually is. You know, as kids, we grow up with these projections of our parents and, and who we want them to be or who we had an idea of them being once upon a time. And then, of course, year after year, we get layer after layer of either direct honesty or revealed flaws. And we start to learn who they really are in addition to who we grew up with. And I think that that becomes potentially the basis of a very real and vulnerable and raw and beautiful relationship with our parents. I, I, the more I get to know my parents, the more I love them. And I, 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 you know, and it's unnerving sometimes holding space for these new parts of them that I discover. And realizing oh god and they're like this oh and i always thought they were like this but actually they're insecure about that and i never realized that that to me uh, suddenly a very real relationship is born a relationship that's not built on those projections and, and i think it's the basis for all strong relationships 
Matthew, it's been amazing talking to you. If you want to find more Matthew, and I'm sure you do, go to matthewhousey.com and read his best-selling New York Times bestseller, Get the Guy. I've loved it. I've just realized I've, I've kept you for an extra half an hour because- No, please. I, it's been my pleasure, Marissa. I, I learned from you, listening to you. It's a pleasure to, to hear your insight and to it's very edifying. And, um, and for anyone who is- um, who wants to learn more. One of the things I've focused on in recent years is helping people with their inner confidence, which of course sabotages so many of our best intentions in relationships and, and dating and in any part of our lives. If anyone wants to learn a, a three layer model for confidence that I created, I actually gave a stage talk where I broke down confidence and how people can practically build it in their lives. Uh, and that's a freebie for your audience that they can go and get. It's actually at getcoreconfidence.com. So if you go to getcoreconfidence.com, uh, you can download that or stream it for free and, and check out that talk on confidence. Oh. But thank you so much, Marissa, for having me. It's been an absolute joy and um, uh, it's inspiring to the, your, your, your experience and the effort that you've put into your passion and your subject over the years is... Um, is really, really amazing and something that I aspire to. Well, I think you've already done it, but thank you very much. Anyway, come and hang out on the Venice Canals. Come and have brunch or lunch or dinner. I'd love that. Thank you for listening to Master Your Mind with Marissa. I'm Marissa Peer, founder and creator of Rapid Transformational Therapy known as RTT. RTT is my life's work and passion combined into a unique, and proven program for therapists to create powerful change with their clients. I feel blessed every day to see the transformations it brings and the ripple effect it's creating in the therapy world. To find out more, visit rtt.com.